Fantastic. Um, well, we're ready whenever you are. Actually, have you, got a, yeah. have, you, have you got a joke for us first? Well, I have a sound check joke, but it's not funny because you've heard it before. So there are two cannibals <laughs> eating a clown, and one says to the other, does this taste funny to you? <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Blinkist. Blinkist is adding all different sorts of content to their app. Uh, it's not just book summaries, but everything to do with learning. They've collaborated with Seth Godin, and twice a week, they're dropping a fresh two-minute episode, which is a little power packet. Two minutes with Seth Godin is really all you need to get a fresh perspective on how you work, live, and look at the world. And now twice a week, you can get two minutes of Seth on the Blinkist app. If you want to get access to all of Seth Godin's two-minute power packets alongside their thousands of book summaries, you can use our link for a free seven-day trial. Head to Blinkist.com forward slash what you will learn. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com forward slash what you will learn for your free seven-day trial. Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. We just had a great chat with one of our favorite people we've learned from in the world, Seth Godin. He's a superstar. We've done six books of his. Most recently, we've done Lynchpin, and we delved a little bit deeper into Lynchpin, which I think was a big clobber over the head if you haven't been clobbered over the head already by Seth. As you mentioned, we've done six Seth Godin books. We first spoke to him back in 2017 in the first year of the podcast. And this time we spoke specifically, I guess, about some of the tangible things that you can do to become a linchpin. We also spoke about his new online workshops through Akimbo. We spoke a little bit about it as a Akimbo podcast. And of course, we like to talk about what are some of Seth's favorite books and what is Seth's views on the importance of reading books. Seth Godin, thank you for joining us. Uh, we very first spoke to you on the podcast in 2017, actually. So what have you been up to in the last couple of years? Wow, time does fly. Uh, let's see. Uh, we've launched a half a dozen workshops. The Alt-MBA is now at 4,400 alumni in 75 countries. I wrote the best-selling marketing book of the last few years called This is Marketing. And the team is now seven full-time people, give or take, and 125 coaches around the world. So I guess I've been busier than I thought. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, we recently read Lynchpin and we love to dig into it. So I think it was about roughly 10 years ago since you wrote it. And uh, since then, I'd love to see what your thoughts are in the direction of where the world economy is going and what it means for jobs and the little guy uh, with things like the the world's debt and climate change. But then you've also got developing countries and new technologies and, and all these things. And so what's the general direction and what's it going to mean for us, us little people trying to, trying to uh, get the most out of our careers and make a move on certain things? Well, when I first published the book, I was surprised at how vociferous some people were in hating it. Uh, because the thesis of the book is that if you can be replaced by someone who can follow instructions more cheaply than you, you will be replaced. And so the alternative, if you want to be proud of your work, is to do that thing that is special, that is human, that pushes you to a place of it might not work. And what I heard from some people, not a lot, but enough, is how dare I challenge the industrial mindset and that really the only way forward for most people 
was to hope to get lucky, hope to get picked, and to do what they're told. And I think the last 10 years have borne out the idea that uh, the industrial deal is not a good deal, and that more and more people are coming out on the short end of the stick because as we mechanize and automate and um, distribute labor, it's harder and harder to make it in the world as a cog in the system. So much of what we're seeing in the craziness as the industrial world starts to unravel is based on this idea that we scaled it too fast and too far, and that in fact, life is not better when we figure out how to make everything as cheap as possible. And so in, in Lynchpin, you, you, speak, you spoke there about cogs, and then I guess the way to move away from being a cog is to give more gifts, create more art. So I think in terms of a initial setup or, or definition-wise, there was a recent episode of uh, your Akimbo podcast called uh, The Gift Economy, which was sort of perfect timing as, as we were reading Lynchpin. And in that, you said that art uh, is something that's personal, original, generous, and something that might not work. So can you sort of give us your uh, explanation of art and how it's more than just uh, the things you hang on a, a gallery wall? Sure. So we'll start with this idea that painting, you know, a bad painting or a painting of a house is not art, but sculpture is art and Shakespeare is art and leadership is art and counseling a sad kid is art. And just about anything we do where we are at our best as a human, I would like to call art. And the other confusing word that I'm using is generous. Generous does not mean give away your work. Generous does not mean work for free. And I've never said you should. Generous means that you are doing it with and for other people. That you are engaging in something that might be challenging or scary to you as a way of helping somebody else get to where they want to go. But that doesn't mean it's free. Free lets everybody off the hook. Free is easy in, easy out. We live in a culture and economy where transactions occur. And what we know is that when a transaction occurs, both sides are more engaged than if there is no transaction. So the currency could be time, the currency could be trust, but often the currency is money. And so you're gonna take college more seriously if college costs money than if you can just wander in anytime you want to. And I am arguing that if you're going to do this work, you should be proud enough of it and serious enough about it that, yeah, in fact, you will get paid for it. Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting element of uh, you, you talked about the, the cycle we often think is just give and get in an ongoing cycle where we're doing favors for each other or doing things for each other. But there's like a, a missing part, which is that the gift, the generous gift um, can you talk about some of the things that perhaps uh, an individual, uh, on a, I guess a, the real world level, something tangible they can think about giving a, a gift more often? Well, what I'm talking about with gifts is something that's emotional. If you want to get in trouble with your life partner, give that person a gift certificate or a gift card. <laughs> because what it shows is that you spent money, but you didn't spend time. And the gift was the time you spent to extend yourself, to imagine what that person might actually want. Here's 50 bucks at the gap is not generous. It is when we see the other and have empathy and make a connection happen, that is when we're doing something that's 
generous. And one of the things that we're trying to do in these workshops is come up with a way to put people in a safe place where they can explore that generosity. So I'll give you an example. If you're going back and forth with someone's work product and they are talking about, uh, I don't know, building a a for-profit kindergarten and you say to them, well, I don't have kids, that's not generous. But if you say to them, oh, so what you're saying is that someone who has kids who has this kind of way of being in the world might be interested to hear about what you are doing with that. Well, that showed empathy because it wasn't about you sending your non-existent kids to kindergarten. It was about you acting as if, leaning into the situation and imagining what this person would benefit from having a conversation about. Mm. You mentioned earlier, Seth, a little bit about the uh, the deal as well that's somewhat been broken. Um, you talk a little bit about the, the deal. It's something that I guess doesn't get questioned growing up. And for me personally, just going to university and you get the commoditized skill set. For me, it was uh, engineering. And then all it takes is just a few books to slap you up and throw you in a, in a new direction. But it's kind of this implicit idea that everyone agrees that this is the only path to be on. So what's this this deal that might be broken that people you know need to hear about? Well, the deal is if you went to school and you did what you were told and you got good grades on tests, you get to go to a more famous school and you could take more tests and you could go to the placement office and you get a job and that job, they would take care of you until you were dead. And all the parts of that deal are broken now. They weren't broken when I was growing up. Uh, I did not get my job at the placement office, but lots of my peers did. And now that's not how it works. And once you get a job, they don't say, we're going to tell you what to do every day and you can work here for 50 years. That's unheard of. That's front page news if that happens. The alternative is to realize that there are dreams, there are possibilities, but most of them are up to you, not up to the system. Yeah. Yeah, from my experience, Seth, when I was out of university and when I was in that deal and then I read a book like uh, Lynchpin and started to make some new actions and new changes, I think there's a there was a bit of a lag lag between uh, doing things new and getting some results i think there was a period of maybe six months where you're a bit of a dropkick weirdo to everybody your colleagues and family and everyone around you because you're doing things so differently but uh what are, what are your thoughts around that is that something to be expected to, to have a period where you're not getting results and it might be a bit difficult i can't believe it was only six months for you <laughs> sometimes for me it feels like 40 years uh, you get you get different kinds of results yeah. uh, you got a, a positive result right away that's why you're stuck with it but no you don't get an easily measured result when I graduated from business school I was the lowest person the lowest paid person in my entire graduating class my starting salary was a third of what everyone else was getting uh, and over time it evens out I mean I wasn't keeping track of my income but we know that this system sticks because in the short run in every short run it's easier and safer and uh, more profitable that's not the question the question is what are you here for anyway and if you picked a different journey could you get more of what you're seeking there was an important part of the of the book that uh, i wish i had read years and years earlier that uh, i think we do like to 
expect everything to work straight away and we do expect to just find a job that we love and a job that fulfills our passion but you're saying that rather than trying to find the perfect job that matches your passion maybe we should bring our passion and match it to the job that we've already got can you sort of talk a little bit about how we can shift our perception towards our our current job i know that i wasn't enjoying mine so much and i i kind of missed that part of the book early on yeah, well, this is so important, and um, it's something I've been doing some writing about just today, which is there are two ways to think about this. First of all, if you define happiness as getting what you want, you are way less likely to be happy than if you define happiness as wanting what you get. And so just as a practical matter, that's the right direction to go in. But beyond that, none of us were born to do the jobs we do. Because when we were born, our DNA, nothing knew about the way the world was going to be now. Van Gogh was not born to paint impressionist oil paintings because that same kid born 20 years earlier or 20 years later never would have done that for a living. We're not born to do any of these things. In fact, we're making a calculation. That calculation might be that we find short-term happiness by whining and about denying responsibility because whatever we're doing isn't what we want to be doing, so we're off the hook. Or we're calculating that compared to what else we could be doing, this is great. You know, So someone who's listening to this who doesn't like their job, well, yeah, but if you lived in rural Borelli, India, in a village with no electricity, and someone offered that person the job you have now, they think they went to heaven. Right, that you get to sit around all day listening to podcasts when you're supposed to be working in an air-conditioned building with free snacks. And so it's all compared to what? And what I've found is that if we make the choice to like what we get instead of trying to get what we want, we get to do better work. And if we do better work, we're more likely to feel like we're of use. I think it's an important shift uh, in the, the way you look at it. And I think uh, you could look at it as, hey, here's the set of tasks that your boss wants you to do or that the, the job description requires you to do. But there's a lot of things that aren't on that list that you can bring uh, and, and I guess offer to your job that can make a hell of a lot more difference and make you stand out a lot more than just going through the, the stock standard list. Yeah, so I'll give you a really simple example. If you are a knowledge worker and you work in a typical uh, environment, the question is, why haven't you started a book club? If you started a book club at work that met once a week over lunch, where you invited interesting people to come together and talk about something, it doesn't have to be a book, you could all just talk about one Fast Company article a week. What would that do for the culture in your organization? How would that create peer-to-peer engagement and relationships that would pay off for years to come? How would it make it a better place to work? You don't have to be the CEO to do that. In fact, the CEO never does. That when a junior person reaches out to another junior person and says, want to sit and trade notes, that simple act starts to weave together a new kind of culture on top of the old culture. That what does it mean to have been the person who brought Slack into your, into your organization? Right, Because it wasn't the IT department that did it. Well, whoever brought it in took an act of leadership, and they compound, and they earn you the trust and engagement of those people around you, which gets you ever more 
chances to make things better. One of the things we've got here in Australia, Seth, and uh, this might be a bit of the resistance speaking in myself or in other people, but is the the whole idea of like a tall poppy syndrome. So when you when you I get up and you're going there, was... <laughs> <laughs> you've probably heard of, heard of this before, but it's it's a massive thing here in uh, in Australia, right? Like when someone does that within an organisation, it's something that you have to contend with. So what 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 are your thoughts on on that whole thing? So. Here's the deal. Every country has a version of tall poppy syndrome. Yeah. And in every country, they say, I don't know how it is everywhere else, but in our country, <laughs> it's just like tall poppy syndrome. The thing is, tall poppies get sun, and tall poppies don't actually cast that many shadows on the poppies that are below them. And the history of tall poppies is really interesting. Uh, it turns out it goes back thousands of years in which uh, one uh, ancient Roman uh, scholar mentor said to another one, uh, what should I do to ensure the future of my kingdom? And he told them the story of cropping off all the tall poppies. Because in that situation, the idea was go back to your kingdom and kill all the leaders. Because if you kill all the leaders, you'll be left with a docile population that will not challenge you. Hmm. But, and it's a big but, then your country is going to wither and die. Hmm. And I think we have dramatically exaggerated how often tall poppies are actually cut down as a defense mechanism because we're afraid of getting closer to the sun. But if the place you're working can't tolerate a tall poppy, then you only have two choices. One, sign up for a lifetime of drudgery and pain and suffering by hiding what you've got to offer, or two, go somewhere else. So it seems to me that if you think tall poppies aren't tolerated, you should try being one because you might be surprised. Hmm, I like it. With the, uh, the uh, is, is a lot of this tying back, I feel like it could tie back to envy potentially. The, we, one of our favorite books is The Laws of Human Nature by Robert Greene. He talks a lot about envy and perhaps the maybe when we're trying to be the tall poppy, when we're trying to do something different, we're, try, we're, we're trying to stretch and grow, uh, maybe we feel like the other people are going to chop us down. Maybe those people want to do what we're doing, but maybe they've got the resistance telling them that, that that's the wrong thing to do and so they chop us down instead. Well, envy, Pressfield would say, is simply a symptom of resistance. That all of the seven deadly sins when they are applied to our work, we bring them into our work because we are afraid. And the fear runs deep, being on the hook, being on stage, being the one who says, I made this. And you'll find any reason you want to avoid it. Um, and what I'm trying to help people see is you can't make that noise go away, but you can learn to dance with it. That when you start feeling whatever it is you are using as your personal way to hide, you need to say, oh, there's that feeling again. It must be on to something. And then do the opposite of whatever it's trying to keep you from doing. Mm. Yeah. On the on the resistance, Seth, you've uh, you've been battling and dealing with it for a good a lot longer than me and Ash show here. Has the resistance changed the longer you deal with it, or is it always going to be there and be expected in every project you, you're taking on? I would say I've experienced two variations of this. The After I read War of Art, 
which is sitting right on the bookshelf in front of me right now. Um, I started developing the habit and the practice of being quite serious about dancing with it. So now when it shows up, and it does, I, I have a little smile on my face because I know I'm onto something. But what I've also found is that it's getting much, much more clever about how it will choose to undermine my work. It will just make me really tired when uh, it's two o'clock in the afternoon and I have something important to write, or it will cause me to have a narrative about my distrust for someone who is opening the door for an interesting opportunity, not because I distrust them, but because that's a good way to not pursue it. And so I'm starting to notice all these different ways that I sabotage my own journey because resistance never goes away. So interesting. Um, I want to talk about the Real Skills Conference uh, as we sort of speak. You know, in uh, January 2020 was the, the first ever Real Skills Conference run by Akimbo. Can you tell us a bit about what that was? Because at the, at the start of the year, as we all go through our sort of looking back on 2019, looking forward to the year ahead, I thought, what are some of the skills that I want to develop this year? So I was specifically thinking about skills that I wanted to develop. And then a few days later, this Real Skills Conference by Seth Godin popped up. Well, I'm, I'm glad it showed up in, on the right day at the right time. We're doing it again in April. It went so well. So we start with this. There are hard skills. Everyone knows what they are. They are calculus. They are the ability to code in Python. They're the ability to take shorthand or to send an email. And those are the cost of entry. You have to have a hard skill to get hired. But I don't think they're that important because lots of people have them. I think what's really important is what some people call soft skills, which I call real skills. These are the choices we make about our attitudes, uh, whether it's honest or insightful or uh, cooperative or confident. These are choices. And I believe that because they're skills, they can be learned. And if they can be learned and we decide they're important, then we will go learn them. And uh, working uh, with one of our key people, Taylor Harrington, we created something that had never been done before in Zoom, uh, the video conferencing software. We know because we were just talking to the people who run Zoom, and they were sort of stunned we were able to make this work. So we had 700 people in a real-time video conference in dozens of countries around the world, face-to-face in small groups and large for two hours. And the astonishing thing is that 97% of the people who started it finished it. And that never happens, even in the real world. You're at the Marriott or wherever, and you walk out of the conference because it's so boring. This was incredible. Basically, every person who joined us finished, and it was transformative. Really exciting. On the, the sign-up page or the promotional page, it was like, here's like a, a partial list of real skills, and it went through like 30 or 40 different skills, you know, influence, leadership, problem solving, resilience, self-confidence, storytelling, all of these uh, skills. And I was like, okay, so it's a two-hour conference. There's like <laughs> 40 skills here. So that's sick. We're going to get like a three-minute overview of each skill. Um, but it wasn't until like maybe three-quarters of the way through I realized that it was actually more about something far more important and valuable than that. Well, yeah. And, you know, I don't mind giving away the punchline because it's not a magic trick. It's just true, which is – it's choice. And if you make the choice, just like riding a bicycle, I can't teach you how to ride a bicycle in a workshop, but I might be able to sell you 
on learning to ride a bicycle. And once you decide to learn how to ride a bicycle, the odds are you will learn. And um, for anyone listening who doesn't know how, the way you learn to ride a bicycle is you take the pedals off. And by taking the pedals off the bicycle, uh, you learn how to go get past your fear of falling and then gain momentum using your feet. And inevitably, you'll learn how to coast. And once you learn how to coast, you know how to ride a bicycle. I like it. I like it a lot. Um, there's uh, something vitally important as well in, in, I guess, both this idea of real skills and, and the ideas in the linchpin as well. And a lot of that, I guess, as you're talking about the choice, it comes down to choosing to take responsibility. Uh, you've got some funny stories about some times you've had on uh, airplanes where people choose to relinquish that responsibility rather than taking taking some action for themselves. Well, so let's be really clear. The entire airline industry is based on you relinquishing responsibility. And most of the time, I'm glad they do because there's only one captain. But the reason we have her wear a uniform is to remind everybody that they're not the captain. And people follow instructions from the moment they get to the airport. The reason you got to put your belt in one bin and your laptop in another bin is not because it makes anything more safe. It's because it shows that you're willing to comply with ridiculous instructions from people in a uniform. And, um, you know, one of the things that was extraordinary about the 9-11 plane that didn't hit its target is that the passengers took responsibility and actually did something. But that's not what we are taught to do when we're on an airplane. And so the story that I tell is, uh, I won't tell the whole thing, but the short version is uh, we landed an hour away from our destination uh, I got the last car at the rental booth and offered anyone on the plane a free ride home. And uh, no one raised their hand. And the reason that no one raised their hand is because if you get off the plane, it's your fault. And if you stay on the plane, it's United Airlines' fault. And people prefer to be able to blame the system. And what I am preaching to people as hard and as often as I can is, Get off the damn plane and take responsibility for what you're going to do next. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's an important whack. Yeah. Uh, that we all need to take a lot more responsibility in what we do. And then you got, uh, and you got the third or the type of person as well. I think you were talking about in uh, Lynchpin how Richard Branson. So you got like option one where you can be helpless and not do anything about it, and then the other extreme, you've got Richard Branson who went out there and uh, basically sowed the seeds of a new airline in that situation. So pretty much like the idea that the the level of the challenge can also breed the exact level of opportunity if, you, if you're the one who's going to take responsibility from it. That's right. And I think that, you know, Branson, who succeeds because he has much better hair than I do, but, um, <laughs> you know, he actually made a sign and walked up and down the airport selling seats on the plane he had just chartered to get home. Uh, and he just keeps doing that same thing over and over again. Right? Like, here's something that needs to be done. I'm going to start, and then I'll make a little sign to see who wants to come with me. That's so good. Uh, we've got a couple of questions around books and about reading and about learning as, as we were talking about these real skills and soft skills. I, I think a lot of these can be discovered in books. Well, that's what we found at least. Uh, can you give us, I guess, your philosophy on, on reading and the importance of reading books as, a, as an overview? Um, sorry, that's the local fire department with their... Uh, um, 
It doesn't have to be a book. I find books to be a screaming bargain. I think if for 20 US bucks, you can get an idea that changes everything for you, you should do that all day, every day. And so I grew up in the book business. I grew up, at, at one point I'd read every important business book at the Barnes and Noble. I would go there every Sunday and if a new one got published, I bought it. Can't do that anymore. But a book is the distilled wisdom of someone who has something to say. And I don't understand how you can be serious about your craft without knowing what the voices that have come before have talked about, have wrestled with, have worked their way through. That Bob Lefsitz writes a newsletter for people in the music business. And if I meet someone in the music business, they don't know who Lefsitz is, I have a lot of trouble trusting anything else they're about to do. Because if you're not willing to spend 45 seconds a day reading a funny newsletter about the music business, well, then what are you willing to do? And the same thing's true for, I know, Michael Cater talking about the book publishing industry. Or, you know, we could work our way down the list. There are voices who are trying to help, to show the breadcrumbs, to turn on a light. And you don't have to like reading books. You don't have to spend a lot of time reading books. But I think you need to know what they say. Because if you don't know what they say, you're bound to make the same mistake that that author did. Yeah, love it. And for you, Seth, since you started reading, and I'm sure you've read loads of books, has there been diminished return, diminishing returns on what you've been learning, or 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 are there still books out there that you come across that give you a big, uh, big new insight that you've never thought of, and a difference in the way you see the world? Yeah, it's both. It's both. The uh, just about everything in whatever genre you're looking at rhymes. So if you've seen 20 MGM musicals from the 40s and 50s, the 21st one is going to remind you of what came before. It's not, you know, I mean, the first Star Wars movie blew people away, mostly because it was the first Star Wars movie. And the ninth one has to rhyme with the eight that came before it. So I really look for those books like The Gift by um, Lewis Hyde, or like The War of Art, or like The Art of Possibility by Roz Zander and Ben, that completely reshape the way I see a, a problem. Those are the books I'm trying to write. But it's harder to do them, because you know when I started in the book business in 1985, there were 500,000 books in print. And now there's uh, 15 million. So there's 30 times as many books in print as there were then, and there's a million new books printed every year on the Kindle. So when you add it all up, it's just harder to say, oh, this thing, that's going to change everything. I've got uh, one, one question here. So we, we last spoke to you, as I said, in 2017. Uh, we've been doing this podcast where we read a book a week for coming up to four years and and you said uh, the last time we spoke to you we asked for book recommendations and you said it doesn't matter so much what books you read it's more like if you read a book a year um, then after 20 years you've read a hell of a lot of books and you've learned a hell of a lot of stuff um, so you've already mentioned a couple of books there but uh, one thing that might fuel the fires we've got a bit of a, a feud here uh, not a big one, just a small one that we, uh, at the start, we both sort of read almost identical books and now our interests are starting to slightly deviate or drift apart somewhat. And we've got very different opinions on, uh, what makes a good book, I guess. But Seth, to you, what, 
makes a good book? What's something that you really value in a, in a book that you read? Well, I'm assuming we're talking mostly about nonfiction, practical kind of stuff. Um, and in that, I really want a book that has to be a book, not a blog post, because if it could be a blog post, I'd rather read a blog post. Uh, number two is uh, I want a book that has a distinct voice, but I don't want the author to get in his or her way. Don't have any patience for books that are more complicated in phrasing and storytelling than they need to be. That there's a real affection that English teachers have for assigning books you have to decode. And I'm just not that interested in decoding anymore. Uh, just tell me as directly as I, you can, but at the same time, and this is a big, at the same time, showing not telling is usually, is usually a good way to get under someone's skin. So it's okay with me that there are stories and anecdotes and slight meanderings, because if I can come to the conclusion myself, as opposed to having someone else tell me the conclusion, it will stick with me for a long time. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think in terms of the, I'll look at it as an engineering point of view, and I see it as like the book efficiency for the first point you made there, like how many words in the, the book per, per what you learn. And I think for me and Ash, a lot of your books, especially like The Dip, it's probably the best books out there for the efficiency. There's no there's no fat in it and there's no long stories necessarily than they really need to be. But then, yeah, you're exactly right. That's something we find about building the tension as well. I think that's something we've learned a little bit in podcasting. At the very start, we didn't see any value in telling the story, what's in the book. We just give the the, the, the lesson and then just move on. But I think that's something we've learned is that you need to build up tension and that's part of the, the process. And I'm sure it's the same with the storytelling in, in general. Right, because tension leads to enrollment and without enrollment, you can't make change happen. That's probably something that... Uh, first I guess was opened to in the, the podcast fellowship number one uh, which was about I don't know two two years ago it was probably two years into the podcast uh, which is one of your akimbo workshops now I uh, was a, as a student in the first one and then as a, a coach in the third and fourth and and coming up to the fifth one soon can you tell us a bit about the akimbo workshops and what you've going on I think there's another new one as well coming up the creatives workshop which is coming soon as well Right. The Creatives Workshop, I'm super excited about. I spent a year building it. We launch it in February. And the Podcasting Fellowship is coming back. So I'll talk about podcasting first. You can learn everything you need to learn about technically making a podcast from two blog posts. Not hard to do. What you can't learn is what it's like to have someone hear your voice. What you can't learn is how to deal with the resistance that will show up when it's time to speak up. What you can't learn is how to find internal trust and fortitude to go get the guests that you want. So that's why we built a workshop, because people do it with each other. And you've been such an extraordinary asset inside of the Podcasting Fellowship, because we're not instructing people. We're building a safe place for them to instruct themselves. And it works, and that's why we keep doing it. And in the Creators Workshop, I've distilled that down even further and made it more general purpose, which basically says... If you want to make a living with your wits, if you want to make a living by being a creative, then you're going to need to learn more than some tips and tactics. You're going to need to learn to look in the mirror and see a creative. And that's what we're trying to build in that workshop. It's the combination of a mastermind group, uh, a masterclass, and a writer's workshop. 
And so people are going to be doing morning pages every day with each other. Um, and what I'm hoping is that we will assemble a community of people who will support each other on this journey. Sounds exciting. Seth, where can people find more about, uh, about you, about your books, about the, the workshops and everything else you've got going on? It's all at akimbo.com. That's A-K-I-M-B-O dot C-O-M. And we put them all in one place to make it easier. Seth, it was an absolute pleasure. Amazing to speak to you. Boy, this was super fun. Thank you both for having me. Keep making the ruckus, guys. What we've done is we've pulled together a document that we call our top 50 best books of all time. In that doc, you'll see our list of 1 through 50, and for each of those books, we give one to three paragraphs of the best bits in there, so you can get a little taste and see if it's something that you might want to read more about. You can grab it for free. Head to whatyouwillearn.com slash top 50, whatyouwillearn.com slash T-O-P-5-0.